0: From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Seren. Hi, and welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Uh, Before we get started, I want to welcome two new affiliates to The Conspiracy Show Network. KFEQAM in St. Joseph, Missouri, or as my uh, Uncle North used to say, Missouri. KFEQAM St. Joseph, Missouri and WFEBAM in Birmingham, Alabama. Great to have you aboard and uh, thanks for making the conspiracy show part of your programming schedule. And uh, once again, thanks to Chris Whitting and his team at Syndication Networks in Chicago for all their hard work and perseverance. Uh, It's not easy, I have to tell you, not easy placing a program like this uh, on the air. Uh, so a lot of hard work involved. And, of course, th- thanks uh, to uh, Moses Neimer here at our flagship station, AM740 Zuma Radio in Toronto, for your continued support. So much going on and uh, so little time to share. I've, I've said this a number of times. I need at least a four-hour show, but it is what it is. Uh, someone sent me this story from a website, although it's circulating on a number of sites, but um, the, the link was sent to me. Uh, the website is unveilingsharia.com. Now, this particular story has nothing to do with radical Islam, uh, but it has to do with uh, a spate of, of deaths within a 24 hour period. Three mainstream American network journalists, all dead within a 24 hour period uh, earlier in the week. Ned Colt, Ned Colt of NBC, apparently dropped dead of a stroke. He was supposedly kidnapped during the Iraq war for several days and then freed. Now, the uh, the supposedly, uh, those are uh, in quotes, they're not my quotes. Uh, Bob Simon, of course, you probably heard about this, of CBS, formerly of, of 60 Minutes, died in a car crash also last week or earlier in the week. And he was, again, in quotes, supposedly kidnapped and held captive for 40 days in an Iraq jail. David Carr of the New York Times... Also died in that 24 hour period after interviewing Edward Snowden and had just come out against Brian Williams from NBC while on CBS. Now again, I'm not making any connections there. Anyway, uh, he was calling for Williams or calling Williams out for lying about being shot down in the Iraq war. So the the common denominator here seems to be Iraq, Iraq, Iraq. Bob Hager, uh, the NBC aviation expert. Recently had a head-on crash. Now, he has survived that, but it was a close call. And then, of course, Brian Williams, off the air for at least six months for lying about the Iraq war. Three journalists dead, one seriously injured, all within a 24-hour period, and uh, all taking place inside the United States. Did they know something we don't know, the article goes on to say. Is there a current campaign to silence the truth? Someone's connecting some dots, apparently. A coincidence? Well, hard to say. Uh, I will, you know, things are never as they appear. However, I'll um, I'll dig a little deeper into that story. But I, it is interesting that you had three mainstream, uh, well, two of them with uh, network news organizations on television, NBC, CBS, and another th- with the New York Times, all dying within that 24-hour uh, period. Award-winning writer, editor, and broadcaster Stephen Kimber is standing by. Uh, to share a remarkable story, one you may not even be aware of. It's kind of a forgotten chapter in history. It's the real story of the Cuban Five. And he'll join me in just a few moments. I want to r- remind you that tickets are now available for my Follow the Truth 2 conference happening uh, in the evening on Sunday, April the 26th at the Region Theatre in Oshawa. Check out the complete list of speakers and the agenda at the website www. Follow the truth dot TV. Follow the truth TV. And we've just added Dr. John Hall, noted medical expert on electronic harassment and mind control. He's going to be flying in from his home in San Antonio. And uh, he's got a brand new book out. I'll see if you can see this uh, on the HOA. I'll tell you a bit about that in a second. But uh, it's called Guinea Pigs, Technologies of Control. Dr. John Hall. In fact, he'll be here on this program to talk about uh, that and again, his upcoming appearance at my conference, Follow the Truth, uh, to April 26th. Rosemary Ellen Guiley uh, will be there as well at the conference, live on stage conducting a, a paranormal experiment, which should be fun, inside the Historic Region Theater with her spirit box. Uh, in fact, Rosemary will be the subject of my Follow the Truth trivia question at the bottom of the hour, where you can win a pair of tickets to the conference And again, if you haven't ordered your tickets, do so this coming week. Our last conference in November was an overwhelming success, and this one is going to be very special. I'm very excited about it. Uh, The box office is 905-721-3399. 905-721-3399. And uh, once again, we're conducting another Hangout on air. You can live stream the program on YouTube. And watch and listen to the show. It's very easy to do so. Just go to my Twitter page, at Richard Serrett, at Richard Serrett. Click on the, it's either the first or the second tweet in the feed, very near the top. Just click on the HOA live stream, Feb 15th link, and you're in. And of course, while you're on my Twitter page, say hi and uh, follow, please. That's at Richard Serrett. And if you want to tweet the conspiracy show, we've set up a hashtag for tonight. Very simple. It's hashtag T-C-S, as in The Conspiracy Show. Hashtag T-C-S. And if you're watching and listening on the Hangout, we'd love to hear from you. Email us here at theconspiracyshow1, the Show one at gmail.com. All right, for the next 40 minutes or so, we're going to talk about terrorists who blow up airplanes and try to overthrow governments and intelligence agents who try to stop them. Uh, the twist is that these terrorists are not radical Muslims, they're Cuban exiles. And the men trying to stop them are Cuban intelligence agents. The Cuban Five were dispatched to Florida in the early 1990s to infiltrate militant anti-Castro exile groups hatching terrorist attacks against their country. In 1998, the Cubans had passed on to the U.S. government information their agents had uncovered, about a plot to blow up an airplane filled with Cuban beach-bound tourists. The FBI arrested, not the terrorists plotting the attack, but get this, they arrested the agents trying to stop it. It all sounds like fiction, but it's true. And this remarkable and tragic chapter in American history is wonderfully documented. In What Lies Across the Water, the real story of the Cuban Five. Stephen Kimber is an award-winning writer, editor, broadcaster, and teaches journalism at the University of King's College in Halifax, Canada. Stephen, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me, Richard.
0: Well, interesting times uh, regarding uh, Cuba, of course. uh, You know, a a great easing of tension now uh, uh, between the, the two countries. Um, first of all, let's dial it back uh, to uh, the early 90s and, and let's step inside uh, sort of the, the Cuban exile community uh, living primarily in the Miami area. This is the, the the area that's being infiltrated by these Cuban intelligence groups. So what is happening uh, in the early 90s uh, with these exile groups in Florida?
1: Well, essentially, the early 90s, Right after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, the exile groups in Miami that had long been uh, hoping for Fidel Castro to be overthrown, to die, whatever, uh, thought that this was their moment—that uh, they had uh, exactly what they wanted about to happen—and you know, in a certain sense, if you look at it, it seemed to make sense. Uh, first of all, the the uh, Cubans had lost their Soviet support, and if you look across the, the the Atlantic at Europe, where the old Soviet Empire fell apart, and you know the Czechs and the Slovaks, and you know it was the end of uh, that kind of empire. And the Miami Exiles expected that that would happen very quickly. It did not happen. Uh, the Cubans went through a very difficult economic time. Uh, what you had was. Um, what they called, Fidel Castro called the special period in time of peace, which meant that, uh, people were, were literally starving in the early 1990s because the, the, the economy was in such bad shape. Fidel Castro turned to tourism, reluctantly, but he turned to tourism as a way out of this crisis for Cuba. And it began to work. People like us in Canada began to visit uh, Italians, the Spaniards, the Germans. Uh, there were tourist resorts built. And this upset to no end the exile community in Miami, uh, and they began plotting uh, attacks on Cuba, that were intended to uh, create a situation where people would be frightened uh, to come to Cuba, that the tourism industry would collapse, and that therefore Fidel Castro would be forced out of power. That was the, the goal of all of this. In 1992, uh, one of the, the very well-known groups in the United States, Cuban exile lobby groups, the Cuban American National Foundation, which has uh, had links uh, with American presidents going back to Ronald Reagan, all through Clinton, sure. You have to court these groups if you
0: want to. You have to court these groups if you want to carry Florida in the presidential election.
1: Absolutely, and and presidents had had done that over periods of time. So it was it, there was no question that uh, the. Uh, Cuban exile community was very powerful in terms of Washington, in terms of policy, and uh, their expectation was that they, they could uh, get what they wanted very quickly. What did not happen the, the, in 1992, the Cuban American National Foundation, at a meeting in Naples, Florida, set up uh, a paramilitary. Now, this is a lobby group, a really well-known, high-powered, uh, high-profile lobby group, and they set up uh, what amounted to a little paramilitary uh, with helicopters and, and gunships and, and all sorts of other accoutrements of, of a military, uh, you know, a, a small military, to attack uh, Cuba. Uh, there were attacks on Cuban hotels in 1997. There were more than a dozen hotels in Havana that were bombed. Uh, there was a at least uh, there was one person killed a uh, 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 Italian Canadian tourist who was uh, uh, visiting uh, Cuba and trying to do business there uh, was killed in one of those explosions. Okay,
0: let me uh, let me just uh, step sure. in here, Stephen. We've got a break coming up. We'll come back and uh, continue to discuss the Cuban Five. They were fighting terrorism, so why did the U.S. government put them in jail? Back with more of the Conspiracy Show right after this. Don't go away. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Stephen Kimber is a journalism professor at the University of King's College in Halifax. He's an award-winning writer, editor, broadcaster, and the author of What Lies Across the Water, The Real Story of the Cuban Five. And uh, sort of making us confront our prejudices about, uh, you know, who's wearing the white hats and the black hats when we think about... Uh, American relations with Cuba, for example, who are the terrorists and uh, who are the the freedom fighters, who are the, uh, as I say, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. Now, um, you're telling us about uh, the, the uh, activities of people like Rodolfo Frometa, uh, who was a leader of one of these exile groups in Cuba. And uh, I mean, these these were well armed individuals. I mean, we're not talking about uh, you know uh, uh, potato guns here. They were they were trying to uh, to get their hands on things like Stinger missiles. Correct?
1: They were, in fact, uh, it, uh, it, it was uh, caught in a sting operation by the FBI uh, trying to buy uh, uh, one of the uh, Stinger missiles. Now, that was one of the rare instances where. Um, One of the exile groups was actually charged in the United States. What what tended to happen was that the American uh, law enforcement officials either looked the other way and just sort of let them go ahead and and do what they did, uh, or they uh, would occasionally uh, arrest somebody, uh, just to just to let them know that they were out there and that they shouldn't be quite so obvious with with what they were doing, but basically they let them get away with with things. And you know, American law enforcement knew much of what was going on in terms of of these attacks on Cuba. But of course, American policy was to uh, you know c- c- create regime change in Cuba. So therefore, uh, you know, even though it was their policy. Not to uh, participate in attacks directly, they certainly didn't, didn't try to stop them, uh, which, which uh, they should have because these uh, attacks on Cuba were in fact illegal under American law under the U.S. Neutrality Act.
0: And they were targeting citizens, were they not?
1: They were absolutely. They were charging, targeting individuals. That's what made this terrorism, as opposed to uh, going to, you know, uh, take your army in and, and, and uh, fight the Castro army or whatever. It wasn't that. It was attacks against individual citizens, both Cubans and, and uh, international citizens. Uh, so, you know, it was it was really what we would classify as terrorism. And that, you know, that became one of the ironies when they were caught and sentenced right around the time of 9-11 that, you know, if you had been able to flip this and and if in uh, the case of the United States, they had had agents inside Al Qaeda uh, in Afghanistan and th- those agents were able to report back on the plot to to uh, attack the United States. And if that had happened, and the Americans had turned around and, and confided in the Afghans uh, what they'd learned, and the Afghans turned around and arrested uh, again, not the the people who were plotting the attacks, but the American agents who'd uh, uncovered it, we would never have heard the end of it. And that is, that, right. that is the Cuban view of what happened. In the case of the Cuban five
0: right i mean i'm I'm, I'm no fan of Castro, but simply because he 's an avowed communist doesn 't give uh, another country you know the right to unleash terror against that country. The hypocrisy is just uh, you know it's it's crushing really
1: uh, it, it, it is the hypocrisy I think that's the the, the uh, most damning part of all of this uh, you know the the the, the Cuban five had infiltrated a number of different groups that were plotting these attacks.
0: Right. We should talk and, about uh, this group. They, they're, they're known as the La Red Avispa. What does that La, mean? The,
1: the WASP Network. And they okay. were a group, actually, of probably about two dozen agents uh, who'd been sent over from Cuba to do uh, essentially the same job, which was to infiltrate these these various groups. They were essentially the, spies, correct? Cuban spies. They were
0: Cuban spies.
1: They were Cuban spies. They, 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 a lot of people don't like the term spies. They were. They, they prefer the term intelligence agents. But essentially, uh, in our c- common understanding, spies. Yes, that 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 would cover it fairly well. But they were. You know, they were uh, sent with a specific mission, and that mission was to infiltrate these groups, report back, and then the Cubans would attempt to uh, find ways to stop them. So. Uh, there, there were a number of people who were arrested coming into Cuba with uh, bomb-making equipment and that sort of stuff. Uh, they were, you know, the C- Cuban state security was able to, to take the information that the intelligence agents provided, and whether it was to arrest the, the individuals or to de- destabilize a plot, uh, they were successful in some instances, not successful in others. But, you know, and that's the the. the, the bombing campaign uh, in Havana in 1997. And then early in 1998, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, the intelligence agents turned up this plot uh, to blow up an airplane. And um, Fidel Castro realized that he could not, on his own, stop this particular plot. So uh, he enlisted the aid of his good friend, uh, the Nobel Prize-winning uh, novelist Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, who happened to be in Havana at a time to carry a secret message to the United States because he was going to Princeton University to to do a workshop, and asked him to divert to Washington and meet with Bill Clinton and take this message about the plot to Bill Clinton. Because
0: Castro it. couldn't just pick up. There wasn't you know this red f- telephone like there was you know during the JFK Khrushchev era. He couldn't just pick up the red phone and say, Hey Bill. You know, we've got this plot we want to tell you about. So, no, had- in
1: fact, it, you know it, what what it, it turns out is when when um, in December when the Cuban Five were actually released and 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 this reset of Cuban American relations began, uh, Obama and Castro uh, Raúl Castro had a conversation on the phone, and I, I believe it was the first in in 49 years that uh, where the president had actually talked. Uh, to uh, his opposite number uh, in the other country, right? So yeah, there, there was no, there was no direct communication. This was a way of of sending that message. And what we do know about that message and and, and what happened was that um, the Clinton White House took uh, the the uh, message from the Cubans seriously. They took the what the Cubans said as as something to to be investigated. In fact, uh, the Federal Aviation Administration in the United States issued a warning to airlines about the possibility of somebody trying to blow up a plane. So they they believed it to that extent.
0: And this wasn't a military aircraft. This was filled with potentially tourists from Europe or maybe Latin America.
1: Could have been hundreds of tourists. Right. Uh, going to you know to 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 Cuba for a couple of weeks on the on the beach, Pe- exactly what what you know is probably happening every night uh, this month and the next couple of months uh, from Toronto, from Halifax, from London, from uh, British Columbia. You know, planes going to Cuba carrying hundreds of tourists. One of those planes would have been uh, blown up. That was the that was the plan uh, and. You know, the, the, the Americans, despite the, the, the you know, bad relations with Cuba, did seem to take this very seriously. And, and there was something that happened in June of 1998 that was unprecedented, which was that uh, a group of FBI agents from Washington and Miami flew to Havana. And they'd never had that kind of meeting with their counterparts in Cuban state security before, but they spent three days in Havana, and they met with Cuban state security at, uh, at a, what they call a workhouse uh, on the edge of town, and the Cubans gave them all kinds of information, the you know bomb fragments from the, the bombing campaigns that had gone on to, to date, um, wiretap evidence uh, that they had gathered. The, the Cubans were very good at uh, knowing who was where and what they were up to, in fact, uh, in one of the documents I saw that the Cubans turned over to the FBI, uh, w- one of the key uh, plotters uh, from the Cuban that the, the Cubans identified was a guy by the name of Luis Posada Carriles, and he's infamous in this world. Uh, he was involved uh, prior to this in uh, the 1976 uh, attack on Cubana Airlines Flight uh, 455, which, which in fact. Uh, killed seventy-six people, and he—they—they they knew so much about him that they knew uh, where his mistress was, and uh, just as you know, gave, and gave the Americans information about uh, that so that they could track him down if you, they, if they as, were looking for him.
0: As you point out, though, I mean, uh, uh, Carillas uh, was brazen about this. I mean, he bragged about his involvement in the Havana bombings in the New York Times.
1: That's right. He, he told the New York Times, uh, I sleep like a baby, when somebody suggested to him, you know, what about this uh, Italian-Canadian who was killed? He said, you know, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I sleep like a baby. And he he not only confessed to his involvement, but he confessed that he was financed in large part by uh, Cuban American National Foundation. So he linked uh, what he was doing back to the Cuban American National Foundation, and I think that was a you know, a, a, a significant confession on his part.
0: Sure, let me just remind uh, uh, listeners, Stephen Kimber is uh, with us, uh, the author of What Lies Across the Water, the real story of the Cuban uh, Five. Now, the the, um, the uh, this Cuban intelligence
1: network inside Cuba, now, th-
0: there, were there more than five?
1: Or w- There were, I counted up to about two dozen, and uh, you know, there, there were the way it worked was that they reported there were agents uh, who sort of they were all independent of one another we talk about it as a network but in fact it wasn't much of a, it wasn't so much a network as the the, the fact is that they all uh, communicated with a couple of what they call illegal agents these are agents who uh, sneak into the country and operate under uh, uh, false identities. Whereas most of the agents, uh, who were there were in fact, uh, people who, who, um, you know, they, they'd been Cuban Americans or they, they pretended to, uh, steal a plane or, or come as a rafter. Uh, they had all sorts of cover stories that got them into the United States. And then they got regular jobs, uh, and they didn't appear to be any different than any other Cuban exile. But in fact, they were reporting back to uh, Havana on on what they what they discovered. So there were about, there were about two dozen. Um, some had gone back to Cuba by the time uh, that the arrests were made. Uh, others, there, there were ten of them arrested altogether. In this is in September of nineteen ninety eight, and five of them. Uh, very quickly, uh, turned essentially turned states evidence, uh, cop to plea, <clears throat> and were uh, therefore uh, uh, you know out of out of the mix. The five were the ones who who stood up and said, yes, we did this and we did it. You know, and and their defense in a sense became necessity. All right, we should just uh, we should just because explain because the Americans would not stop these plots. The Cubans had no uh, alternative but to stop them on their own, and and therefore there was a justification defense for uh, their uh, their work in the United States.
0: Now these five sorry these five agents
1: uh, courts in Miami, but uh, that was the defense.
0: So uh, these five agents uh, that were arrested uh, in Florida. What were the circumstances? How did, how were they found out? The, the, and again, these are the agents that are providing the intel that foiled uh, these uh, some of these terrorist plots, uh, prim- primarily this uh, this 1998 uh, plot to bomb a, a Cuban airliner. So,
1: how now, were they caught? No, no, they were caught. Um, It gets complicated here. After the meeting with the FBI in June of 1998, the FBI went away and said, we're going to investigate and we will get back to you. And even to this day, the Cubans that I've talked to who are involved in state security say they believe that those American agents were serious and sincere about what they they said they were going to do. But somewhere between June and September, things changed. And, Uh, they came and arrested these guys and they were it wasn't that the FBI didn't know about them in fact the FBI had known about them for at least two years Uh, they'd been following them and and nobody is quite sure how they got on to them in the first place Uh, but they had been following them and I'm guessing that what happened is they find one And they'd follow him to a rendezvous with another, and once they sort of identified who was the key player in all this, and that was a guy named Gerardo Hernandez, uh, they were able to sort of identify who the other uh, players were.
0: Okay, we've got that music uh, coming up here again, uh, Stephen, so we'll take another time out. We'll come back and uh, continue to discuss the Cuban Five. They were fighting terrorism, but instead of arresting the terrorists, they put the Cuban Five in jail where they languished for many, many years. Back with more of my conversation with Stephen when we come back here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we'll get back to our conversation with Stephen Kimber, author of What Lies Across the Water, the real story of the Cuban Five, here in just a moment. Uh, It's time for our trivia question for Follow the Truth, your chance to win a pair of tickets Uh, To my conference, Follow the Truth 2, happening Sunday, April the 26th at the Region Theater. Now, one of our speakers is Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator who joins us on this program uh, once a month. And uh, she'll be flying in with uh, her spirit boxes to perform a little paranormal experiment live on stage at the Historic Region Theater. Now, here's the question. I'll take the seventh correct caller who can answer this question. The phone lines are open now at 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, toll free, 1-866-740-4740, 866-740-4740. Rosemary Ellen Guiley co-wrote a book with George Norrie, the host of Coast to Coast AM. What is the title of that book Co-ri- co-authored by Rosemary Ellen Guiley and George Norrie. We'll take the seventh caller, Tim Spreen, standing by. We'll take the seventh correct caller and uh, the correct answer will get you a pair of ducats to follow the truth to happening April 26th at the Regent Theatre in Oshawa. All right, back to Stephen Kimber, award-winning writer, editor, broadcaster, a journalism professor at the University of King's College in Halifax. And... Um, First of all, the uh, yeah. Let's get back to the uh, the um, the arrests. Now they tracked them down, and we should we should also point out that these five are are known sort of affectionately uh, in Cuba by their first names. I mean, there are there are pictures of them all over the island. Uh, Stephen, uh, what are their first names? Uh,
1: well, there, there, there's Gerardo. Gerardo is the, the leader of the group. He was the the key illegal intelligence agent. Uh, there were two. Agents, uh, operator, operating agents. One was a guy by the name of Rene Gonzalez and the other was, uh, Antonio Guerrero. And then there were two other illegal agents, uh, uh, Ramon Labanino and, uh, Fernando Gonzalez. So they, they, and, and as you say, if you go to Cuba, if you were to go to Cuba and, uh, go to a school, um, talk to little kids, they could, you know, they were Los Cinco. They were uh, these people that they knew as heroes, as national heroes. And you can understand why. I mean, forget the the communist uh, issue for the moment. Uh, these are guys who, who prevented terrorist attacks against their country, and they paid a horrible price for it. So, you know, you can understand why they would have been heroes. Right,
0: and, and they saved the lives, not necessarily just of Cubans. Again, these could have been... European tourists, uh, tourists from from Central America, perhaps even who knows, someone from Canada.
1: Oh, absolutely. So yes, uh, they were you know protecting uh, us uh, as uh, as well as, as as Cubans themselves. No question about that.
0: Now, were any of the Cuban Five uh, uh, sort of embedded in a, in a, undercover in a military base?
1: One of them was, and and this. Became part of the issue uh, in the American courts. They were um, some of them were charged with conspiracy to commit espionage. When, when, because of the fact that they didn't in fact commit espionage, it was conspiracy to commit, uh, which is a catch-all and, and makes it easier to prove. If you at some point in your life uh, said maybe this might be something I would do, uh, then that is enough. Uh, to justify a conspiracy charge. And so they were charged with conspiracy uh, to commit espionage. One of them, Antonio Guerrero, uh, he worked on uh, a military base, Boca Chica uh, Naval Station uh, in Florida. Um, He was a janitor. He got the job because uh, he went to an employment office and the employment officer felt sorry for him and sent him uh, to first of all dig ditches on the on the military base. He rose to be a janitor. He certainly didn't have access to military secrets. The reasons that the Cubans wanted um, their agents in the military uh, bases was defensive. Um, the, if you if you look at the example in the 1980s and 90s you had Haiti Panama Grenada where yeah, the, uh, the Americans had invaded uh, for a variety of reasons the Cubans certainly felt vulnerable and thought that they could be uh, subject to that kind of invasion so that, that having uh, people on these bases even in a non uh, secure kind of role allowed them to get the kind of information that they needed. For example, they had come up with a, a, a checklist of things to watch for, uh, and while they were sort of watching for these things, these were signs that there might be an invasion. So suddenly uh, a lot of brass uh, hats come down to Florida from um, the northern bases, or a bunch of jets show up uh, where, they, where they hadn't been before, uh, There's high security alerts. Those were the kind of signs that there could be an invasion uh, imminent. And so he could, uh, Antonio uh, could see that kind of information from his job. He could have seen it from the highway. Uh, you know, you would see these planes or whatever. So it wasn't a, it was a military mission. But it wasn't the kind of military mission that we think of when you're stealing uh, national secrets or anything like that. So, so they weren't doing that, for sure.
0: All right, when we come back, we'll, we'll talk about uh, one claim that one of the Cuban Five, Gerardo, may have been involved in a conspiracy uh, with the shoot-down three years earlier of two brothers to the rescue airlift. This is another anti-Castro group that had been rescuing rafters Uh, of those people fleeing Castro's Cuba in the Straits of Florida. Uh, We'll find out whether there's any validity to that charge, and we'll also find out what happened to the Cuban Five. Where are they? Are they still languishing in prison? Back with more of my conversation with Stephen Kimber, author of What Lies Across the Water, the real story of the Cuban Five right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Hey, congratulations to Tony Morsi of Toronto, who won a pair of tickets to Follow the Truth 2, April 26th at the Regent Theatre in Oshawa. And uh, he did so by being the seventh correct caller and answering our Follow the Truth trivia question for this week, which was the name of the book, Co-authored by one of our speakers at the conference Rosemary Ellen Guiley, a regular on the program uh, A book she co-authored with Coast to Coast AM's George Norrie And the name of that book is Talking to the Dead And she'll be uh, attempting a spirit communication experiment When she joins us at uh, the Regent Theatre again. Followthetruth.tv. All of the uh, the speaker bios, all of the details for the conference, uh, are all right there. Followthetruth.tv. All right, uh, back with Stephen Kimber, uh, award-winning writer, editor, broadcaster, and uh, professor of journalism at University of King's College in Halifax. We're talking about uh, the Cuban Five now. One of the uh, the five of this Cuban intelligence uh, group, Gerardo. Uh, was somehow connected, allegedly, uh, to the shooting down of an uh, uh, anti-Castro plane, or a a, a group called Brothers to the Rescue. This was a plane, uh, and the the, uh, Brothers to the Rescue aircraft was supposedly trying to uh, pick up rafters that were fleeing Cuba in the Straits of Florida. Um, Any validity to that charge, that Gerardo may have been involved in the shooting down of that plane.
1: Reality was that they had infiltrated Brothers to the Rescue. Brothers to the Rescue was, as you say, a humanitarian organization at one level, and it was actively involved in in uh, helping rafters who were trying to escape from Cuba. Uh, but as a result of an agreement between Cuba and the United States in 1994, they really didn't have any rafters to rescue anymore. In fact, the, the last 1,800 missions they flew, uh, they didn't, uh, find one rafter to, to rescue. Uh, instead, they became agents provocateurs, and they would fly their planes into Cuban airspace, dropping leaflets um, uh, and other things on uh, the, the the city. Uh, the Cubans protested. The Americans tried to stop this group from doing that. They didn't have much luck. Uh, you know, they, they threatened to suspend their their pilot's licenses, uh, but that didn't have anything to do. So the Cubans had been threatening over a period of about seven months, if you don't stop these guys, we will. And they did in the end blow them out of the water, and, and a number of, of people were killed. And you can certainly make the case that the Cubans should not have done that. I mean, there's a, there, there are arguments that say that they, they had a right to given that these uh, guys were were violating their airspace and and the and because of the work of the cuban five they knew that this same group had been test firing uh... missiles from some of those planes so it wasn't um, it wasn't a stretch to think that they might have been doing something more than just dropping leaflets but having said that i went through the evidence uh... there were more than twenty thousand pages of trial transcript uh... there were boxes of evidence presented And I looked very carefully at this particular allegation because it is clearly the most serious, and I was not able to find any compelling evidence to suggest that Gerardo Hernandez was involved. The reality is that the exile community in Miami wanted somebody to pay the price for this shoot-down. They were not in a position to indict Fidel Castro, who is the person they most wanted to to, uh, blame for this and hold accountable for it, Gerardo Hernandez was convenient, uh, and so the, that was the. I think that was the reason he was charged. He wasn't charged till seven months after the others. The other charges were laid against these people. And the and the, the most interesting thing is at the end of the trial, after uh, the prosecution had presented its evidence, defense had presented its. The the uh, judge instructed the jury, and the prosecutors rushed off. To the courthouse and said that based on the, the, the judge's instructions to the jury, they didn't believe that they had, in fact, uh, presented, uh, the evidence that would uh, convict. And the, and they, they so the, they, they, they believed that they hadn't produced the compelling evidence in this case. The, 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 the appeal court simply said, let the jury decide. The reality was a jury in Miami, um, is not going to decide in favor of uh, five uh, Cuban government employees. It's they just, actually no held the trial
0: in Miami. I mean, what kind of a defense attorney would hold the trial in the, you know, in the uh, the heart of the the Cuban exile community?
1: That, well, that's the, ridiculous. the, the, the uh, defense lawyers tried on numerous occasions to have uh, a change of venue because of the fact that this was a you know, just the, the wrong place to, to hold this kind of trial, and they got turned down. So uh, it did not, to, after, at the end of the trial, um, it didn't take the jury long at all to decide that these guys were guilty of every charge against them. Uh, they were convicted and sentenced to incredibly long uh, prison terms. Uh, Gerardo Hernandez, for example, uh, was given a double life plus 15-year sentence. Uh, two of the others were given life sentences that were later uh, commuted to, to slightly lesser uh, sentences. So, you know, these were, were pretty powerful sentences that were handed out to these guys. Did, you ever, 90, did you ever meet back with... Back in or... 2000, actually, after the trial.
0: Right, just over 15 years ago. Uh, would, did you ever meet with or speak with any of the, of the Cuban Five?
1: I have not uh, to this point... Uh, In the United States, it was impossible for me to get in to see any of them in prison. And and Gerardo, for example, was in a maximum security prison uh, in California. He wasn't allowed even to um, use the prison email system, which, you know, murderers and others had had, uh, been able to do. Uh, So... Our correspondence was all by uh, the old snail mail, and his letters were all handwritten to me. And we had dozens of letters back and forth as I tried to sort of ask them questions and get more information. And and uh, so it
0: was mainly Gerardo that you, you corresponded with?
1: I corresponded with all oh, of did. them. Primarily Gerardo and Rene Gonzalez, who was um, – uh, he, he had uh, stolen a plane – Uh, technically, in uh, 1990 and defected to the United States. And, of course, he was always uh, a Cuban intelligence agent, so he was, in fact, uh, doing that undercover work. He and I had had a long correspondence. He was the first one to get out uh, about two years ago and and get back to uh, Havana. But 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 he got out because he had served his entire sentence.
0: um, Of 13 years. Yep. And he was one. That was one of the lesser uh, sentences. Uh, That's
1: right. Fifteen years was the the least of the sentences.
0: When when you were corresponding with them, what was their mood like? Were they completely befuddled as to why, instead of being hailed as heroes and saving lives, they were arrested and thrown in jail?
1: I don't think they were befuddled. I think that uh, they were. um, They're very interesting characters because they don't they didn't hold a grudge about against the American people they didn't seem to um, they in prison they were model prisoners one who barely spoke English when he got into prison uh, became a teacher of uh, other inmates uh, trying to get them to, to uh, learn English so that they could pass their GEDs uh, They were, and they, you know, they they decided when they got into prison that they were going to make use of the time there. Uh, uh, Rene Gonzalez, for example, uh, ran uh, uh, half marathons in prison. Um, Antonio became a poet and a a painter. Uh, Gerardo ran uh, in many ways. He was the most active. Person in terms of his own defense, uh, you know, and the solidarity. What had happened over the years is that a kind of a solidarity movement grew up around uh, these guys. It was international. It wasn't that big in the United States, but it certainly was big in in uh, Italy and Spain and Germany and and England, um, where there were groups formed to try and 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 uh, convince the Americans. Uh, that these guys had been unjustly in prison. Were there no uh,
0: discussions about prisoner exchanges? I- I'm sure that there must be uh, U.S. intelligence agents languishing somewhere in a Cuban uh, prison. Were there no well, discussions th- th- of that? The,
1: the, there was a, uh, the, the, a man named Alan Gross, who was an American uh, U.S. aid subcontractor, who was arrested in Cuba in 2009. And he was. Um, bringing in sort of sophisticated telecommunications equipment, he was sentenced to 15 years in prison. And the Cubans had said, uh, pretty much from the get-go, that they would be willing to have a humanitarian exchange uh, of they would send him back in exchange for the the Cuban Five. Um, and by the end of the, 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 the whole saga, there were only three of the five left. Uh, the, the first one, Rene had mentioned, uh, got out, and, and last February, Fernando had ended up serving his whole sins. For most of the time, the Americans had said... No way. There's no equivalence between this guy, Alan Gross, who was a humanitarian do-gooder, which was not quite true, but but that was the argument that he was, he was somebody who uh, was not a, an intelligence agent or a spy like these other guys, and therefore there couldn't be any equivalence. But what we didn't know was that beginning in June of 2013, the Americans had approached the Cubans uh, from the highest levels, uh, about a discussion about an exchange. And that went on for 18 months. Uh, and then in uh, December, just just about a, m- a month and a half ago, um, out of the blue, there was an announcement that, uh, yes, uh, there was going to be a prisoner exchange. Uh, the three remaining members of the Cuban Five went home to Cuba. Alan Gross uh, came home to the United States. And there was... Another intelligence agent that nobody had heard of before, an American intelligence agent, or I shouldn't say that, he was a Cuban uh, who had given the Americans information back in the mid-1990s and had been arrested and served 20 years in prison in Cuba. Uh, And the Americans used that. They got him out. I don't think they particularly cared about him, but they got him out, and they were able to, to, to use... That, to say that they hadn't traded for Alan Gross, that Alan Gross was just a humanitarian gesture that the Cubans had made. Right. What uh, is, uh, which doesn't matter. Right. Uh, they're all now home. Uh, Gerardo Hernandez had been denied uh, access to uh, even see his wife for most of that time, and they'd been hoping to have children. Thanks to the – and this becomes a complicated story, but thanks to the intervention of the Pope during the secret negotiations um, – he was allowed to provide uh, his sperm through artificial insemination. And shortly after he returned to Cuba, uh, they had their baby girl.
0: Remarkable. We're uh, just, t- just about out of time here, Stephen. But w- what has the reaction been uh, to your book in, for example, the exile community in, in Florida? Uh,
1: I would say that that probably in the exile community in Florida, it's not at the top of the bestseller list. <laughs> um But, you know, I think that there's there's even a a big change in Florida now. And and people, a lot of people in Florida who are not part of the very old guard uh, now see that, you know, it makes sense, even if what you want is to to have regime change, it makes sense to have relations with Cuba and not uh, to see them as as, uh, somebody that you want to defeat. No, I mean what, in, what has the, been accomplished. Conventional kind of way.
0: What has been accomplished in the last fifty years, fifty plus years, fifty-five years? Nothing.
1: Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And and um, you know if Cuba is going to change, it's probably going to change on its own, uh, and it is changing actually now. Uh, and so I, I don't I don't think that the the embargo has done any good, and uh, the posturing hasn't done any good. So it's certainly time to try something new and different.
0: Well, uh, congratulations on uh, What Lies Across the Water, The Real Story of the Cuban Five. This is a chapter most people are not familiar with, and uh, I applaud you for bringing it to all of our attention. Thanks so much, Stephen.
1: Thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Take care. My pleasure. Bye-bye now.
0: Stephen Kimber, award-winning writer, editor, and broadcaster, and uh, the author of What Lies Across the Water, The Real Story of the Cuban Five. Hey, we will... uh, direct you now to the website richardserrett.com your portal to the conspiracy show check it out past show archives if you're not a member register it's easy to do and of course uh, say hello on twitter at richardserrett and just a friendly reminder always follow the truth